That's awesome. And thank you, Laura. Years and years, Laura's been doing that ministry. Appreciate you. All right, it comes Adam with a table. He does it all. He brings tables. I think last week, I listened to his message. Uh, Awesome, as usual. Um, He quoted uh, Nietzsche, Kant, Augustine. Um, Just let me warn you right now. So you can keep your Snickers under control. I'm going to quote Wesley from Princess Bride a little bit later. Um, The more that I uh, read from the letters uh, from Peter, which is what we've been studying for a few weeks now, if you've got a Bible or an app or something like that and you want to open, I'm looking at 1 Peter chapter 4. The more I read from Peter... Uh, the more challenging uh, the letter becomes. I don't know if you're experiencing the thing, same thing. I want to say, what I want to say is that I don't like it. Um, but that's simply because I'm one of those people who prefer uh, not to suffer. I'm one of those kind of people. I don't know what kind of people you are. <laughs> if given the option of suffering or not suffering pretty apt to pick the non-suffering route. I've been uh, the benefactor of a pretty good life, really good life in many respects, largely comfortable. Um, And I am admittedly not all that accustomed to an enduring kind of pain. Um, Some of you have been subject to trauma and tragedies and difficulties Um, not even just recently, but maybe in the early stages of your life, and you have learned and built the muscles for suffering. Um, Life, life is suffering for you in many ways. Um, And most, if not all of us, are acquainted with uh, different sorts of difficulties, some of them even profound. Uh, But you've Many of you have, like I said, built muscles in those directions. The good news, the good news is that the sort of suffering that Peter is preparing us, for, prepare, well, preparing us for, but in a sense, preparing the readers of his letter, right? We've talked about the fact that this letter Peter wrote from Rome is, is going to circulate through what we know to be uh, the part, parts of Turkey, um, and it's going to move through, slowly through uh, some new Christian churches, and he's, he's warning them. He's in Rome, so he is seeing the kinds of persecution that's coming about, um, particularly for Christians, and he knows it's going to not only continue, uh, that reach of the persecutors is going to expand, and it's going to be pressing against. And Peter is warning us of the suffering that we will inevitably need to endure. Um, he, he, he's balancing it, right? He's balancing it to some degree with um, an, an inspirational uh, foreshadowing of, of good results, right? It's not suffering for suffering's sake or suffering for no good reason, um, it's the kind of suffering that, that we might equate with um, like an Olympic trainee, 
right? There is, there's a certain degree, if not a high degree of suffering that is required to be an Olympic athlete and an even greater degree of suffering that is required to receive the reward or the medals of having accomplished the greatest um, things in your particular field. It, Peter is suggesting that there is suffering, but that there is also a reward. Um, in fact, the reward that is unattainable apart from the suffering. Like you can't have certain rewards in this life or in the eternal life that aren't predicated on some form of suffering. Here's Peter after chapters and chapters. This, I mean, you're slogging through the middle of his letter and it's like, I get it, I get it, I get it. We're gonna suffer. It's suffering, they're suffering, I get it. It like says suffering every other sentence, and then he gets to, uh, uh, he gets to, well, before he gets to that point, let me, I, I guess what I, to the results thing, listen, listen to him in the first part of the, of the book. He says, in all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have to suffer griefs of all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in may result in praise. The, 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 the trials that you're going through, the griefs that you endure for Jesus' sake result in praise. You don't want to blast through that. It's not like, yay, praise, yay, whoo, cheer a little bit. No, praise, something, something deep within our soul that comes alive and honors God and has a sense of depth and appreciation and hope and strength, praise. It's the kind of praise that rather than lifts your arms, causes you to bow down. What, what we endure as a Christian the suffering, the unique suffering of a Christian results in a humbling yet powerful depth. Glory and honor when Jesus is revealed. Though, though you've not seen him, right? Peter's talking to people that haven't seen him and us. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you are filled. Don't, don't you feel empty a lot these days? Now, I do. Maybe, maybe, maybe we're just tired. Uh, maybe, maybe you've suffered loss. Maybe there's something missing. And uh, I don't know what the core of the emptiness that you feel, if you feel it. But if you have felt it or, or you are empty, there is, it, it, is, it is just like hunger. I want to I consume. I want to have something to fill this void, this emptiness.
And if we're not aware of the spiritual nature of the emptiness, we try to fill the spiritual emptiness with physical content. Are you with me? <laughs> we try to eat, purchase, buy, win, so many things that we imagine will fill our stomach of emotional, spiritual emptiness. And Peter is saying there is a suffering that results in a filling. Inexpressible. When you're, when you're physically hungry, your stomach is growling and, and you're hungry and you eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich because that's the best <laughs> way to do it. And then you're full. You don't go, man, I'm full now and I don't know why. <laughs> you go, I just ate a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Right? You have an impulse or a compulsion to, to buy something, to purchase something, to, to acquire something, and, and you do it, and for a moment, you think, ah, that feel, feel good. And you don't go, I don't know why. You know why. There is a feeling that comes on the heels of suffering and trials that is inexpressible. You could say, makes no sense. How could, how could not having any food result in hunger going away? How could suffering lead to filling? Suffering almost always equates to what? Loss. Peter's saying, no, there's something going on here related to the work and the life of Jesus that fills in an inexpressible, unexplainable way. And you're receiving by faith the rescue of your very soul. That's what it is. Humanity doesn't always realize that our soul needs some rescuing. We realize there's a problem. We, we, we can readily recognize where the world is broken. But we don't often realize it's our soul that needs healed. Not in one sense, the world is not what needs to be fixed. I need to be fixed. I need to be filled. I need to be healed. I need to be rescued. And in that state, in that place, we can live in a broken, painful world with a sense of purpose and meaning and life and praise. Can you imagine? In a sense, being totally fine 
totally fine. In a broken space. Peter is promising something. There's a worthwhile finale to the arc of history that Christians are a part of. But that doesn't change the current fact suffering is built into the Christian life. There is no hint of a prosperity gospel in the gospel writers at all. There is promise of almost only suffering with a future result that is good. Do you, do you see now why I'm disturbed <laughs> on one level about Peter? But there may be none better of the disciples to hear from on this than Peter. There's nobody more maligned in Scripture than Peter, really, in the New Testament. He was a wreck. And he has lived his life for us in view. His salvation, his sanctification, his transformation is right out there for everyone to see. He's a wonderful example. But he was self-protective. He was self-interested. He was prone to dish out suffering rather than accept it. But he ended up being one who fully inculcated the life and the way of his suffering master, his friend, his rescuer, and his Lord. He ended up a lot like Jesus. And he shows us a way. One of my favorite moments of Jesus with Peter is at the end of John chapter 21. He had risen from the dead. He'd been dead, buried a few days, and this is like the third time that he showed up. And this is on the Sea of Galilee, and they're out there fishing all night. They catch nothing. He comes to the shore. They barely recognize him. He tells them to throw the nets on the other side of the boat, and they catch this miraculous load of fish. And then they're sitting around a campfire cooking the fish. Jesus says, bring some of those fish you've caught. They dragged the net ashore. The net was coming apart. And Jesus says, have some breakfast. Let's rest. Let's rest together. And none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? <laughs> but that was the obvious question at this point. He was dead and now he's alive. And now we're eating breakfast with him after a miraculous cast of fish. Who are you? They've been with him for three years, but every day goes by and they're more amazed and just confounded by the majesty and the miraculous nature of this life. They knew it was him. It's like, what? What is this? So Jesus came, he took the bread, he gave it to them. He did the same with some fish. And like I said, this was the third time that he appeared to the disciples after he was raised. When they finished eating, Jesus asked Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He says, do you, do you love me? He wants to know, if, are you going to follow me? You, you're amazed by me, but are you going to follow me? And he goes through this process of really reinstating Peter because the last big thing that Peter did was reject Jesus out of hand three times. So 
Jesus is forgiving him and reconnecting with him and recommissioning him. Peter was a little bothered that he asked him three times, but he did, and he answered. He said, you know I love you. And then Jesus says this to him. Truly, truly, I tell you, when you were young, you dressed yourself and you walked where you wanted. But when you're old, you're going to stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. If you follow me, it is not going to be a life of roses and puppy dogs and glitter. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And he said, follow me. There's no prosperity gospel here. The promise is you follow me, you're going to die. You're going to suffer. That's what it means to follow me. This is, this is why I love Peter so much. <laughs> Can you see this? And he looks and he sees John. And he says, what about him? <laughs> Hey, well, why are you singling me out here? He seems like really committed to you. How's he going to die? Is he going to die? This is what Jesus says to you and to me. If I want him to remain until I return, what is that to you? You follow me. Don't look around at the way Jesus is leading other people. Don't look around at the way other people are or are not suffering, are obeying or are not obeying. This life is mapped out in particular for you and it's intended to be done by following Jesus. And you will and I will endure what is in store for us and not for anybody else. If you love me, Jesus says, you follow me. And if you follow me, you're going to end up doing like me and living like me, and then you are going to end up like me. And suffering. And then exalted. In ways unlike anything that this life can parallel. An exaltation we, we know almost nothing really about. But like the Olympic trainee, Jesus is saying, follow me, do like me, live like me, suffer like me, but know that that suffering is leading to a reward that will make it all completely and totally worth it. Here's where Peter arrives after chapters of reminding and promising that we're going to suffer. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. 
Before we get into this suffering a little bit more in detail, can we all agree, shall we all agree, that it would be great to be done with sin? How great would that be? There is a pathway there, it would seem. Wouldn't it be great to live in a place or in a way that eradicated the darkness that comes along with school shootings, the deception that um, invades and corrupts politics, the, the selfishness that exists within oppressive leaders, the hellishness of abuses of all sort, whether it be of a spouse or of power. Wouldn't it be great to be done with the damage that's created by hypocritical, hypocritical Christians, the harm that comes from the emptiness of greedy people. Wouldn't it be great to be rid of the callous and comfortable way people are bashing each other these days? Wouldn't it be great to be done with the lies of deceptive marketing? Wouldn't it just be great to be done with cheating and stealing and sexual deviancy and promiscuity and jealousy and lying and overwork and underwork, <laughs> not to mention fear and pride? Wouldn't it be great? And we're not just talking about everyone else's sin, right? <laughs> be tired, be tired of your own sin. Don't you ever just wonder why if we're made by God in his image, we have trusted Christ for uh, salvation and the rescue of your soul that, you still, that we still have impulses to not be good? Wouldn't it be great to be done with that? Wouldn't it be great? Are you tired of sin? Wouldn't it be great to be done with it? I hope you feel that way. If, you, if, you're, not, if, you don't, if, you're, if you're not tired of sin, <laughs> I suspect you must just be ambivalent to it, which is maybe worse. You've given into it in some way. Maybe you've joined the, the fringe uh, out there who normalize sin to justify their own behaviors or, or, escape, uh, or to escape a sense of guilt. I hope you're not living there. I hope you're sick and tired of sin in your heart and in the world around you. I hope you haven't been unconsciously reprogrammed. Sin is not sin. It's just life. I hope you're not comfortable. The Christian isn't ambivalent about sin. We don't live in denial about sin. We find it deplorable and invasive. It infects the world and my own heart. It'd be great to be done with sin. But we have to have a sober acknowledgement of it, the wickedness of it. Because if we don't see it, if we're not impacted by it, if we're not aware of it, you're not going to find Jesus and you're not going to be reconciled to God. Sin is why Jesus arrived, and sin is what separates us from God. 
To say there is no sin or to not be worried about it or not see its impact is to be separated from God, your eternal place and security forever. It would be fantastic to be done with sin, but if we've lost sight of sin, we will never escape it. It's never good to be unaware. It's never good to be unaware of what sin is. It's not good to be unaware of who you are or how you're affected by it or living according to it. Awareness is always the beginning of good things. There is no other start to better than awareness. I think it's Proverbs 2019 that says, where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. Where there is no vision, where there is no revelation, where there, where there is no discovery, people cast off restraint. They, they walk away from the very things that keep them on a good path. If you're unaware You're not on the right path. You're walking down that wrong path. It's math. Nothing can be fixed if the brokenness isn't known. That's true in life. That's true in organizational turnarounds. That's true in AA. I'll call it on. You start with awareness. It'd be great to be done with sin. Oh, my. When we come to the New Testament, we come to the most significant point in the arc of God's historic plan and purposes. The moment when the grace of God took form in this world, namely Jesus. And that Jesus suffered and he succumbed to solve the problem of sin. That is to disempower it to release those that are trapped by it, to allow those to be, others to be made clean from it, to be forgiven of it. But he didn't remove it from the world. But he made it possible in the midst of it to be whole again, to be acceptable again to God, to be restored to him, to be as we were originally attendant, intended. But the path in this life, suffering. So this is what Peter's talking about, all this, through his letters. We're coming to the end of it. We've talked about this merciful belonging if you read back through the letter, you're going to find this wonderful hug at the beginning of the letter. It says, in Christ, you now belong again in the family of God. Out of mercy, you belong. He talks about the restorative nature of truth, how destructive it is to embrace something other than what's true. We get a promise 
of renewal. We are given a, a, an avenue of escape from the constraints of fear. Peter is making all of these wonderful promises. Rather than making them, he is communicating those godly promises to us that have come to us and become real through Christ. And then finally, he gets to this space where he is preparing and encouraging and anticipating the struggle of life. He gets to this point of helping us know how now do we live? And he reflects, rightly so, that if we're going to follow Jesus, the living of a Christian life is a suffering. You can just look at the beginning of Jesus' life. We spent weeks and weeks and weeks looking at the book of Mark. If you go back to the first chapter, where did the Spirit of God lead Jesus, the Son of God, following his baptism and his anointing, he led him into suffering, into the trials, into the tests in the wilderness where he came face to face with sin. Never took it on, never took the bait, never walked down that path, but experienced the struggle of living according to God rather than the darkness it is a struggle in this lifetime that the one that we have given our allegiance demonstrates and leads for us. He was not exempt, and neither are we. Paul reflects this in his book. All through the New Testament, you get this. Remember Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have these wonderful things. Jesus has come. He's rescued us. It's in him that we've gained access to the grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We do. Not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Yes, we've been given the greatest gift to be released of the, uh, the final blow of sin, but we've not been released from the battle that we face as we live this life and the sin that comes along with it. Therefore, Peter says, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. There is some kind of a surprising connection, an odd connection even, between suffering and doing away with sin. If you're tired of sin, the Christ solution isn't to redefine sin. It isn't to hope it away. It isn't to pretend that you're not affected by it or to insulate or protect yourself from it. But it is to suffer in opposition to it. Once you've lived a little while, 
and you've lost whatever naivety you may have enjoyed in your early life, you realize, if you're honest, that life is inseparable from suffering. To quote Wesley from The Princess Bride, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says otherwise is selling something. Arguably, our efforts to not suffer, to not suffer, cause us actually more pain, more silent, isolated, deeper suffering because it's unavoidable. I am sorry to inform you, Christians are not exempted from suffering. To be done with sin requires the Christian to suffer. I think we assume that Jesus did all the suffering so that we don't have to. And in fact, Jesus is saying, I did something that you, so you don't have to. <laughs> I did something so that you won't endure the final results of it, but I have done something that I want you to emulate, to follow. I'm giving you a pattern. Your life is going to be like mine, not unlike mine. To be done with sin requires the Christian to suffer in a particularly even unpopular sort of way. But there is a choice in the sort of results that come from suffering that you will endure. We've talked about that. There is what I would call bad results suffering and good results suffering. We don't want bad suffering. We want good suffering. We don't suffer for suffering's sake. We don't suffer in ways that perpetuate suffering. Christians suffer in ways that do, that does away with sin. We suffer in ways that add otherwise unattainable joys and hopes in this world. It's crazy. The Christian suffers in a way that doesn't eradicate suffering, but it adds something to life that otherwise isn't there in your own heart and in the influential spaces that you're in. provides a deep and abiding connection with God. Our connection with God is not particularly our good behavior. Our connection with God is to be like Jesus and suffer in the good ways that do away with sin. And there... We find the mercy and the grace of Jesus because we fail at it miserably. But in that space of suffering and forgiveness, we find God. And it results in praise and glory in a deep and abiding life and calm and contentment and freedom that is otherwise unattainable. From Mark, again, chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that has come upon you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice 
rejoice that you share in the sufferings of Christ. Most of us think Jesus was awesome, unparalleled, phenomenal. And we get the chance to come alongside him and be like him. And it includes this life of suffering. And it is a joy. It is awesome to walk through life with Jesus the way he walked through. The kinds of teaching that Peter's teaching here cannot be embraced unless you are released and being released by accepting the suffering of Jesus on your behalf. Like that is step one. You can't even begin to go down this path of embracing suffering unless you have been forgiven and you live in the grace of God provided by Jesus. So step one is to say yes to him. And then you live this life of faith in opposition to the residual sin impulses of fear and pride that ridicule uh, or rather um, riddle our lives. There is a life, a beautiful life, a good life that is not in alignment with sin. That is very, very hard. There is a narrow path, a difficult path that is in alignment with God's way. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. A life that is a good life, a life that is... um, a good suffering can be had. But it doesn't bring the rewards and the reliefs that the world pursues and is accustomed to. It's a different set of rewards. The good life, the good suffering, what are we talking about here? Let me just give you a couple real quick and we'll talk more about this next week. The good life, the good suffering includes things like compassion for an enemy that brings ridicule from your tribe. Gratitude in an undesirable situation. Patience that leaves you lonely, empty. Generosity that makes you less comfortable. Honest words that make you vulnerable. Admissions that humble you. Intentional losses that make you look weak. Commitments that end up in conflict with your happiness. This kind of suffering does away with sin and sets us up to receive the rewards that only God can give. The good life, the good suffering. Includes beautiful things and beautiful ends. Let me finish here for today. This is first Peter five. This is near the end, and we'll we'll pick it up right here next week. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. 
Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Is anything else happening after me? Just you? I mean, not just you. <laughs> no music or song. You just okay, Adam, come on up. Let's um, let's pray while Adam while Adam comes up here. Actually, um, why don't you stand? I'd like to bless you. I'd like to ask God to give you grace and mercy. And I'm gonna <clears throat> do that by maybe repeating some of Peter's final words here. Receive this, would you, please? Open your heart, your mind, your hands. Pray that you would be humble in the midst of this life and the suffering that comes upon you, knowing that it is under God's mighty hand and knowing that he will lift you up in due time. I pray that you would recognize and realize and sense that your suffering is separating you from sin, meaning you're being restored. And finally, I pray that the God of all grace, who called you to his glory in Christ, after you suffer a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. Amen.